welcome to Frontline Voices, a podcast by the Natural Resources Council of Maine. Every week, decisions are made across Maine that affect the future of our environments. Lawmakers in Augusta propose or debate new bills. Mainers speak up on proposals made by corporations or state agencies. Clean energy projects are launched, or communities take action to address threats to clean air or water or open spaces that they cherish. Since 1959, NRCM has been on the front lines, tracking these developments and tapping into the power of Maine people, science, and the law. NRCM does this to protect and enhance the nature of Maine. So every two weeks, we'll sit down with advocates and experts to discuss some of the most important stories you need to know about and what lies ahead. Thank you for listening as we share our view from the front lines. Hi, I'm Colin Durant, NRCM's Advocacy Communications Director, and I'm happy to be back with you after a relaxing week on Monhegan Island, which is one of our family's favorite spots in Maine, and then a somewhat relaxing weekend full of intense heat and swarms of mosquitoes at the Herman Island Campground, which is another favorite. But thankfully, the beaches there, which are just uh, amazing, brought us a slight breeze and some slightly cooler temperatures um, so we could play in the water there and, and enjoy it. Um, Pete, uh, we're back with Pete Didasheim, our advocacy director. And uh, Pete, I know you just returned from what sounds like an amazing backcountry trip out west. Can you just give us a little taste of that experience? Sure, yeah, glad to be here. And I did just have a great five-day backpacking trip uh, with a few friends in the Beartooth Wilderness in Montana, and it was spectacular. I've been there before, um, and I hope to go back again. I'm almost sure that I will. We covered a lot of rugged terrain in a stunning million-acre wilderness area, really just spectacular landscape. We had rain, hail, thunder, lightning. Most of it, fortunately, was at night, uh, which meant that it did clear out most of the smoke that was in the air, in the air from the wildfires out west. So the days were really clear. Um, got very close to a moose, closer than I've ever been here in Maine. Got some great pictures of that. I love that. And I love backpacking. And those mountains are really some of the best in the country. Um, and I was offline completely. No cell coverage, no f- iPhone uh, for five days, and that was particularly wonderful. That that just that sounds amazing. I'm, I'm going to add that to my bucket list. And I got to say, um, it's one of the things I really appreciate about NRCM. We the folks here really work hard, but then when they're when they're on their break, they play hard too. And and it's good to know that you can just you know turn off rejuvenate and then come right back at it. So, so Pete, with that in mind, let's go right back at it. And as we do every episode, yep. uh, just give us a few quick updates before we dig into the meat of our episode. Um, Give us a few quick updates uh, that were in the news recently about Maine's environment that you think our listeners uh, need to know about. Sure. First, let me touch on a really critical development regarding the controversial CMP transmission corridor through Western Maine. Last week, a Superior Court Judge, Michaela Murphy, terminated CMP's lease on public land in Somerset County, which NRCM lawmakers of both parties, lots of other people have been saying was an illegal lease for years. Uh, The court agreed with our position that the state had failed to follow proper procedures in entering the lease. So the lease was no longer valid, which means that CMP no longer has what's called right, title, and interest over all of the land that it needs for the 145 mile 
uh, transmission line. So this is a really critically important decision and potentially puts the entire project in jeopardy. And it's important because it hinges on our the state's legal safeguards for protecting our public lands. The first sentence in Judge Murphy's opinion, and it's an excellent opinion, uh, frames the issue well, saying, quote, in 1993, the people of Maine decided that their public lands were worthy of constitutional protection. She then goes on to explain that Maine people voted to amend the Constitution to mandate that public lands cannot be reduced or their uses substantially altered unless there's a two-thirds vote of both houses of the Maine legislature for any such change on the public lands. But in 2014, which we have pointed out and others, the Maine Bureau of Parks and Lands violated this constitutional requirement by failing to seek a two-thirds vote from the legislature for a lease with CMP for this massive transmission line across uh, a parcel of public lands. And obviously, a massive transmission line would be a substantial change of use of that, of that land. And the state failed again last year when it renegotiated the lease, failing again to inform the public or the legislature and failing to secure the necessary vote in support from the, by the legislature. So in response to the court decision, NRCM sent a letter to the commissioner of Maine's Department of Environmental Protection last week, calling on her to order CMP to immediately halt all new clearing and construction on the project. Also, DEP separately announced that it might revoke CMP's permit because of this ruling. But we believe that the, con that the construction really needs to be stopped now. CMP's illegal lease has been terminated. It no longer has the legal authority it needs over the entirety of the land it needs for the project. Maine's public land needs to be held in public trust. And that trust has been breached by the state and the court has ruled in our favor. CMP and the state have appealed this decision, but we're pretty confident in our position that the lease il is illegal and the project should be brought to a halt right now through a directive by the DEP. We'll pursue it in the court if we need to. And then we need to reinforce that in November by a vote in support of ballot question number one, which would stop the CMP quarter. So we're feeling like uh, this was potentially a really critical moment in our effort to try to stop the CMP corridor from wreaking havoc across Western Maine forest lands. Yeah, it's just an enormous milestone for this highly controversial project. And, and um, just a quick, since this is about a, a podcast about news, a quick shout out to Maine Public, who sort of did a lot of the digging and reporting on this early on. Um, but what strikes me as really important, and you reiterated this, about this decision, and it is a strongly worded decision, it's worth reading for those of you who are interested in that sort of thing, is that it really puts the CMP corridor in a new light. It focuses attention on their how their illegal lease across Maine's public lands really could set a dangerous precedent for all public land in Maine. And the reality is, and you said this, public lands are for Maine people, not for corporations. And and there's laws and the constitution is in place uh, to protect that. And so this two thirds vote requirement to me uh, that was put in place to protect public land seems more important than ever. Absolutely. And it's a requirement both in Maine law and the Maine constitution, which explains why Judge Murphy's ruling was so strongly worded. Let me explain one other development, uh, just give you a little bit of background that um, we're paying attention to and is important. This week, NRCM and members of the Kennebec Coalition filed a really long set of comments, 83 pages, with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, 
in which we make the case for removal of four dams on the Kennebec River between Waterville and Skowhegan. We've talked about this in a previous podcast. One of those dams, the Shawmut Dam in Fairfield, is up for relicensing. And the federal government has failed to do a proper environmental review as part of that relicensing process. So our comments were a really detailed science-based critique of FERC's flawed review of the harm being caused to Atlantic salmon and other fish by the Shawmut Dam and the other three dams on the Kennebec. In a nutshell, we say that FERC's apparent willingness to accept the idea of building flawed fishways at Shawmut and the other dams really would be a recipe for failure and would doom Atlantic salmon in the Kennebec, just like similar flawed approaches have resulted in the demise of Atlantic salmon in rivers to our south. Yeah, and I'll note we had nearly 800 Maine people and NRCM supporters who sent comments to FERC um, about that flawed, flawed approach. So, you know, we really hope they're going to reverse course. And of course, regular listeners to this podcast will remember we dug deep into this issue with our staff scientist, Nick, Nick Bennett, uh, because, you know, this is just a fast moving campaign and issue. I'm sure we're going to have him or someone else on soon to talk more about some of these exciting developments. And we're expecting more in the coming um, weeks and months as well. But let's let's just let's now shift gears to a major, major um, report that was in the news, a troubling climate report that was released on August 9th. Uh, this was the sixth report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change out of the UN. And this time, the world's top scientists did not mince words. They made clear that the nation's uh, nations worldwide uh, need to act now uh, as soon as possible to transition away from fossil fuels so that we can avert the worst impacts of climate change. Pete, uh, tell us what really struck you about that report. Well, I've read a lot of climate reports, and this one was a particularly troubling one. It does paint a dire picture of worldwide accelerating impacts Um due to climate change with a narrowing window for action. And the report concludes that humans unequivocally, that's the words, the word that they use, um, are to blame for the warming of the planet and that rapid action is needed to cut greenhouse gas and emissions in order to limit the impacts. But very disruptive uh, changes already are kind of locked in, they're baked in because of our failure to act over recent decades. So what it, what it says is that within 10 years, the Earth's temperature will probably exceed the level of warming that world leaders have sought to prevent. We've already heated the planet by two degrees Fahrenheit over the last 150 years or so through the burning of fossil fuels, and an even hotter future is coming our way. The projections really are alarming. Nearly a billion people worldwide could face life-threatening heat waves. Hundreds of millions more would struggle because of water shortages, severe droughts, many animal and plant species that are alive today could become extinct, food supplies could be disrupted, coastal cities will face growing threats from sea level rise, causing climate migration and refugees. This report was approved by 195 governments and was based on information from more than 14,000 studies. So it really is without question the most consequential and comprehensive analysis ever of how climate change threatens life on Earth as we know it. 
in perhaps one of the biggest headlines that that accompanied a number of the stories that uh, that that uh, were printed as part of this report was the UN General uh, Secretary General Antonio Guterres described the report as quote code red for humanity, and that's what it is. The bottom line from this report is that global warming is dangerously close to spiraling out of control. The actions that have been taken to date are nowhere near enough to start reducing greenhouse gases. And we need to be much bolder and fast. Yeah, the, the report, it really just makes clear, as you said, that climate action needs our attention immediately. We can't delay. And yet, you know, we know from polling and we know uh, just from the discourse that yet it seems um, it still seems difficult for many people to think about climate change, to sort of wrap their heads around it. Um, and, you know, many still think it's a problem that's far in the future. We can sort of, you know, hold off on some of the actions for another 10 or 20 years. Um, and so for some people, it's not yet real, right? Yeah, I understand that. But, but really, climate change is staring us right in the face. It's, it's here. We're experiencing it every day. The U.S. government just reported this week that July 2021 was the hottest month for the planet in 142 years of record keeping. In the last six, uh, let's see, last seven Julys have been the hottest seven Julys on record. Um, so think about that. Each of the last seven Julys were the hottest ever recorded in July. In response to that news, a climate scientist who NRCM has sponsored here in Maine is it to give a talk. Um, a number of years ago, Michael Mann from the Pennsylvania, um, Pennsylvania State University said, this is climate change. It is an exclamation mark on a summer of unprecedented heat, drought, wildfires, and flooding. News about the impacts of climate change really are coming at us every day. And I recently remembered something that a former colleague at the Department of Energy, a guy named Joe Rome, told me back in the 1990s when we were both working at, at DOE. Joe is a climate expert. And he said that although at the time we were reading about climate change rarely in the paper, he said, mark my words, in 20 years, we're going to be reading about it all the time, every day. People are going to be writing about it all the time because the impacts would be that disruptive. And that prediction came back to me uh, recently. Um, this past Saturday, I was reading through the papers and I counted 10 stories in the paper that day that were tied to climate change, including from Italy, where the temperature in Sicily hit 119 degrees, the highest temperature ever recorded in Europe, from California, where the US Forest Service is operating in crisis mode as fires spread across the West, threatening thousands of homes and entire towns. 21,000 firefighters are working on the ground right now out West, double the number from last year, battling a hundred large fires in 14 states. From Colorado, there was a story where people visiting the Great Sand Dunes National Park, which is known for its dark skies, couldn't see the annual meteor showers because of the smoke caused by Western fires. From Seattle, where a second heat wave in the Northwest was causing road crews to spray water on century-old bridges to keep steel from expanding. Seattle already has had three 100-degree days this summer that's as many as were reported in the previous 100 years. And there was also a story from Brazil where extreme weather linked to climate change has damaged coffee crops of the world's largest coffee exporter, which likely is gonna cause the price of a cup of coffee to increase around the world. So 
impacts from small to large are in the paper every day. This is what's happening and being reported on all the time now. And the UN report puts a big exclamation mark on it. We must pay attention to what's happening because the blanket of pollution we've already put into the atmosphere from burning fossil fuels already is locking in a lot of change. And we really need to act aggressively, immediately, boldly, and I'd say courageously for our political leaders to accelerate the transition away from fossil fuels. One last point, the past decade likely was the hottest for the planet in the past 125,000 years. The hottest in 125,000 years. So we need to bend the curve away from this red zone, this um, dangerous place that we've come. And what we've got to do um, is much more than, we, what, than what we've done so far. We need more action and we do need more political courage. Uh, you, well, yeah, that's for sure. And I'll note, you know, those Western wildfires here in Maine, we, you know, we, the consequence of that was uh, really poor air quality and that sort of orange hazy haze that came over us that was really ominous. And I was talking to a friend about how that's just symbolic <laughs> of I mean, the future and sort of like a scary way. Well, but I, as, as you said, and I'll also note, uh, you know, Maine Forest Service firefighters are headed out, out west to assist with the wildfires. So, you know, this impacts everybody and it impacts Maine in, in lots more ways, of course. And, and like you said, what we need is action. We need that bold action. We need that political courage. Uh, it's not happening enough. We know that. What, so what is, tell me what in your mind, in the mind of NRCM, what's this action look like? And in particular, what's it look like at the federal level, level where, first of all, not nearly enough has been done, right? They've just been kicking the can as, as the saying goes. Um, uh, but now uh, Congress is discussing this once in a lifetime infrastructure investment. And so, you know, what, what does the federal government need to do to give us the tools and, and, to, and to respond appropriately? Um, uh, to both this report and to what we know based on science and fact. Sure. So here's the thing to keep in mind. We know what we need to do to reduce emissions, and we've known it for decades. We need to electrify our transportation and heating systems, and we need to generate our electricity from renewable energy sources. We need to really end our addiction to fossil fuels so we stop adding to the pollution uh, that's already around the planet that comes from burning fossil fuels, and we need to stop thickening that, that blanket of pollution in our atmosphere. So Maine has a, a really good climate action plan adopted last year, uh, Maine won't wait. And the technologies we need for electric vehicles, low cost solar and, and wind, including deep offshore wind, for energy storage and high efficiency construction, they're all either available or will be coming available in the years ahead. So what's urgently needed now is funding that will result in widespread adoption and deployment of these systems. And that's gonna require a substantial infusion of federal funding. States are not gonna be able to pull it off on their own. So the sort of package we need is what's currently pending uh, in the Congress, this $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation plan that's now before Congress. Um, that spending blueprint, which already was passed by the Senate, could be the most significant climate bill in US history with big initiatives and funding that would accelerate electric vehicles, renewable energy deployment and development, power storage, reduce methane emissions, a powerful greenhouse gas, 
and create incentives and funding for bringing renewable energy to low-income households, among many other initiatives. One big policy proposal that's in that bill would compel electric utilities to shift to emission-free power sources. Uh, the framework also includes a carbon polluter fee, which would impose a tariff on foreign produced goods tied to high greenhouse gas emissions. The goal here is to send a strong message that as US manufacturers produce goods without the use of fossil fuels or with low emissions, then other nations must do the same or pay a price. So the benefits of this reconciliation package for Maine would be big. It would be big in a lot of different ways. It would help us implement our climate action plan. It would help create jobs. It would, would reduce our contribution to, to climate change. It would accelerate the transition for, to clean energy here in the state of Maine. And it's a big deal. Along with the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which is a separate uh, bill um, that also has significant benefits for the state of Maine, we need both of these bills to pass in the weeks or months ahead both include pieces that deal with the climate. And it may not be sufficient, but it's absolutely essential that we get moving to respond to the sort of alarm that the UN report has now uh, brought to us. Yeah, I mean, it couldn't be more stark. And, and, and I want to, you know, I think uh, you laid out what federal government needs to do. And um, you know, Congress, our congressional leaders respond to voters and their constituents. And that's where I just wanted to sort of end this note with a tweet uh, that I read um, that I think really sort of encapsulates an issue um, that a lot of us who care passionately about climate action, who worry about the impacts of climate change on our children or on future generations, um, an issue that reports like this UN report sort of surface and all these all this daily news that the impacts of climate change, um, you know, can be really dispiriting. They can, uh, you know, it leads to climate grief and climate anxiety is a real and serious issue that a lot of people face with. And so, you know, I wanted to end, like I said, on a note on, on, on um, by reading this tweet from UMaine Climate Institute scientist, uh, Dr. Jacqueline Gill, that I think is just sort of uh, is a really hopeful note, actually. And she said, uh, the new IPCC report comes out today. She tweeted on the day it was being released. And you may feel any number of things, anxiety, fear, anger, numbness, grief, determination, hope. If you're overwhelmed, it's okay not to read the headlines. But whatever you feel, use this to feed the fire in your belly. Don't let it go out. And, and I just love that. It, it, it first acknowledges that this is hard for many of us, but it also encourages us to turn that, you know, turn that feeling into action. Um, Absolutely. It was a powerful statement for me. Absolutely. Um, and there is something terribly sad and tragic about the place we have come to as a planet, but now's the time to feed the fire in our bellies for action. It's a very motivational uh, comment by Dr. Gill. We need our elected officials to show courage also. They need to help lead in Congress, at the federal level, but also here at the state and local levels. So yes, um, anxiety about climate change is real. Uh, there's a reason to feel a sense of loss and despair. And 
it needs to f- be motivational. We need to collectively work to protect this planet that we're living on. Yeah, let's feed that fire in our belly uh, for sure. Well, thanks so much, Pete, for digging into this really complex uh, IPCC report with us today, uh, bringing it down to the main level too, how it's going to impact Maine. And I'm sure uh, it was on the minds of many of our listeners. And it's always good to get your perspective on how it impacts Maine and the environment. So um, just real quick, looking forward, can you tell us a few of the uh, things that you're going to be paying attention to in the next couple of weeks? Sure. Uh, quickly, first, uh, we're obviously paying attention to whether the DEP directs Central Maine Power to stop construction of their uh, their transmission corridor now that that key lease for the project has been ruled invalid. And if not, we may need to go to court to try to force construction to stop. Also, of note, um, this weekend marks the fifth anniversary of Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument, also known as KWW. Some of our staff will be up in that region participating in a celebration event for that important milestone. So happy fifth birthday, KWW. It's Yay! incredible. Yay! Um, also in a couple of weeks on September 2nd, we'll be focusing on a planning process for the Moosehead Lake region on lands formerly owned by Plum Creek. Uh, there will be a lot of public input for this process. It's in extend over many months. Um, and we hope that the result will be a plan for the region that helps protect the natural character and the local economy without encouraging sprawl and habitat fragmentation. We talked about this a little bit in our last podcast with Melanie Sturm, our forests and wildlife program director. And we're involved because Moosehead Lake region really is one of Maine's very special landscapes worthy of careful community guided planning, not the type of sprawling development that Plum Creek proposed 15 years ago. And thank God that Maine people were able to block that from happening. So those are a few of the things we're paying attention to. Yeah, absolutely. Moosehead is uh, just such a gem. And, and for those of you who haven't checked it out, head on over to our blog uh, to see a really fantastic photo essay of photos from the region that illustrate both the beauty and the multiple uses that are supported um, uh, by the Moosehead region. Those were photos from photographers in the region. And I got to say, yikes, you'd think that the, when the legislature's out of session, we get a break, but things, you know, no, don't slow busy, down. Busy. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's not the down. case. And, you know, as always, our advocates are right there when they're not uh, hiking in the bear tooth, uh, right there with you on the front lines, protecting Maine's environment. So, uh, and, and we're doing it side by side with all of you. So thanks for that. And thanks again for listening. And as always, if you like what you heard, please let your friends and family know about Frontline Voices, share the podcast with them, and be sure to leave a review if you can. Thanks again. See you, Pete. You bet. See you, Colin. Thank you for listening to Maine Environment, Frontline Voices. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to our podcast or leave a review on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and other podcast listening apps. To learn more about NRCM, please visit nrcm.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at NRCM Environment. Until next time, thanks for your interest, attention, and involvement in the collective efforts by Maine people to protect the unique woods, waters, and wildlife of our state. Thanks again.